Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, indeed, as we have declared, nothing does compare to you. You are our God, uh, seated on your throne. And the voice we hear this morning as we open the scriptures together is the voice from the throne room of heaven. So cause us to be humble as we should. Uh, Cause us to come near to listen very carefully to you. And Father, we pray that this word that you spoke at the very dawn of creation, spoke creation into existence, uh, would uh, be a word that by your spirit uh, brings life to us this day. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, please uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to what David read for us just before Luke chapter 4, page 1031. Uh, Luke chapter 4, 1031. As we continue this series in the early chapters of the Gospel according to Luke together, it's a a series uh, designed to cause us to see Jesus and his ministry to us as increasingly precious. Our ministry, uh, not just precious to us uh, when we first believed, if you're here this morning as a believer, as a Christian, as most of us are, uh, but still precious to us each and every day, perhaps more so. And so that's what we hopefully will see together as we look at Luke 4, as we see Jesus who is declared in Luke's gospel as the Son of God, uh, the very author of life, the one who did speak creation into existence. Uh, But we also see Jesus declared to be the son of Adam, that although he is God, although he is uh, king of all, he humbled himself and became a man. He took on flesh and blood as we have. And we saw that he did this because of his very great love for us. Uh, He was sent and went willingly because his father sent him from heaven, sent him who is the king of all to serve us, uh, to meet us again and again at our greatest point of need. Uh, The need that we've seen as we've looked at Luke together, the need to be reconciled to the God who made us and is our judge. Uh, The need to overcome the sin that keeps us apart from him. The need to overcome the horrific consequences of our own sin, that is death, uh, that shadows this world. And Jesus comes to serve us where we most need it. He comes to serve us because he knew long before we did that we were desperate for a saviour. He knew our need of God's favour that he declares in this chapter to break into this world, break into the path that each of us was on, a path that leads only to death, and to give us uh, what we dare not hope for, what we can't possibly deserve, uh, life and blessing. That is the ministry of Jesus Christ to us. But as uh, if you've been here in recent weeks, as we began this series, uh, we saw at the beginning of chapter 4 that the odds were stacked against us that this ministry would ever reach us. Uh, beyond our own problem of willful rejection of God, beyond our own declaration of autonomy in this world, thinking that we are in charge, uh, we saw there in the opening verses of Luke 4 that uh, in this world that we think we rule, there is an enemy, uh, the devil who indeed holds sway in this world, whom we are enslaved to. And his ambition, his singular ambition, is to derail the ministry of Jesus long before it ever reaches you. He hates God, and he hates those God loves, that is us. And so his ambition is to cause us never to receive this ministry from our King. 
And so here in these early chapters, we see Jesus has come to us and for us and is against our enemy. And so it is no, uh, it is no exaggeration to say that the ministry of Jesus Christ is a cosmic battle, uh, but one that is fought on the stage of flesh and blood. Now, this is how Hebrews 2 put it, uh, the other reading that David read for us. Did you hear it? These wonderful words that speak of what Jesus has come to do. Now, since children, the children of God have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we saw a snapshot of that uh, in the desert as he himself uh, did battle with the devil, our enemy. It was like a a little overture of the battle that's going to rage all the way through this gospel. It's a battle Jesus intends to win. Now that's why in uh, Luke 4 verse 18, the the declaration that we saw there, the announcement Jesus made is a a battle cry. This is him announcing the war is on. Now, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says in verse 18, because he has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Today, says Jesus in verse 21, today is the day uh, this, uh, this kingdom of favour breaks in. Today is the day that life and blessing break into a world that is in slavery to sin and death. No more, says Jesus, will that rule. Today, all that changes. And how does he wage war? What mighty weapon could he possibly wield that would be strong enough to break the strongholds that hold us? Well, it's the same weapon he used in the desert. He speaks. He who spoke creation into being speaks to destroy that which holds creation in bondage. He speaks uh, life where death shadows all. And the wonderful thing about today's passage is we get to see that up close. Uh, We'll watch this battle undertaken in one day of Jesus' ministry. One day we'll see this battle taking place. That's the scene uh, before us as we begin our passage in verse 31. The first couple of verses really set the scene for us. Uh, Verse 31 says we're in Capernaum and Galilee. It's a place like any place, like our place in this world, where we see death and he who holds the power of death does hold sway. That's Capernaum. And yet, ironically, as this scene begins, uh, it's in that place, it is the Sabbath day. A day that uh, God himself instituted at the dawn of creation, a day to enjoy the wholeness of creation. A day rich in purpose and freedom, a day where the fearful experience of death has no place. And so you've got this real jarring here at the start of our scene. It is a place where death holds sway, celebrating the day when death won't hold sway. And what is Jesus doing as the day begins? He's teaching. Verse 31, and the response, verse 32, is significant. Do you see it there? They were amazed at his teaching because he was one whose word had authority. Now, this word amazed is the same word used of the response later in Luke's gospel to Jesus' mighty works, his amazing miracles. His word is just as mighty as his hand. They're amazed because unlike uh, for them, the Sabbath, uh, they'd experience their, their own rabbis reeling out tired, tired recitations week after week, just quoting from commentaries. All of a sudden, into their synagogue comes one whose word is like a double-edged sword, whose word cuts to the very heart of the matter, and when it gets to the heart, it sets that heart on fire. Here is one whose word has authority. 
Or as verse 36 puts it, authority and power. And that gives you the hint of what's going on here. It's not just that Jesus was the most eloquent speaker of all time. He may well have been. Uh, but this power, uh, this dunamis, uh, uh, the word the, uh, the Bible uses also for the spirit of God is, well, that's where the power comes from. It is very spirit-filled words that he speaks. This is the power of God in speech, spoken by the one who is anointed by the power of God, the spirit of God, to speak them. Remember that? I have been anointed. The one the father said when he was baptised, this is my son whom I love, and in Mark's gospel he ends with this, listen to him. The words he speaks are spirit-filled words. This is the very power of God in speech. And let me say as we set the scene for this day of ministry for Jesus, as an aside, when we read uh, here, Uh, This same spirit-filled word, this same Bible. When David got up to read, something incredible was happening. And we need to raise our expectations of what is happening when the Bible is read in front of us, when we are doing what we are doing now. It is God's spirit-breathed word, his powerful word, not the words of men, but God. Words of purpose, words of life. And so my job uh, now as uh, we look at this word together is not merely to explain it to you, Uh, In fact, it's to get out of the way such that God speaks to you, the Spirit of God speaks to you, for that is a powerful word. And so the scene is set. The ministry of Jesus Christ is a speaking ministry, speaking this purposeful, powerful word of God. And what follows in the verses in front of us are four little snapshots of the day. And we're going to look at the first one in depth and then more briefly at the others. Here's the first. It's in the synagogue from verse 33. It's a typical Sabbath day, they're in the synagogue, but uh, right there in the middle of the synagogue, verse 33, is, a, is an example, a child of this broken world to show how much death holds sway, how much the evil one holds sway. A man possessed by a demon, we're told, an evil spirit, and he's crying out at the top of his voice. Now the description in verse 33, may well present us with questions about the the nature of demon possession and evil spirits, and we might want to explore that, and we will address it directly in the coming weeks in this series. But I put it to you here in this opening verse, this dramatic scene of this uh, demon-possessed man screaming out in the middle of the church service, that Luke has put it there deliberately on the back of this uh, declaration of war, and not to make us think, ah, Jesus has come for extreme cases, Instead, he puts it there to convey the exact opposite, to show us how extremely serious our case is. Now look again at this man. Now what seems extreme is indeed just a stark example of our own enslavement to Satan. You see, our rejection of God, our estrangement from God, it's not a neutral thing. It's not a passive thing. Far from it. To live life opposed to God, to live life distant and estranged from him, the God who made you and loves you, is not a neutral thing. But it is a sign of slavery to the evil one. Now listen to 2 Corinthians 4. This is what it says of anybody who is living distant from God. The God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. If you're not a believer here this morning, that's what you can't see. You can't see Jesus as magnificent. 
are so glorious that he puts all else in this world, all the power, all the prestige, all the relationships, all the sex, all the toys, you name it, in his shadow. You can't see that he made you and loves you and is utterly for you. You can't see he's your king. Now you may, if you're an unbeliever this morning, uh, want to respond, no, I'm my own person. My unbelief is a rational, independent decision. But the word of God lays this challenge before you. The truth is you've been blinded by the God of this age and you need a powerful word to fix that. And so verse 34 is not so unfamiliar, is it, when the demon cries out, are you trying to destroy us? It's a defence against our threat, against our self-rule. Have you not felt that? And perhaps for those of us here remembering before you turned to the Lord, before you were a Christian, when faced with the claims of Christ, when it all got very personal and all of a sudden a personal decision was required, did you never feel that same defensiveness, perhaps even hostility? Here is one who is threatening my whole worldview and way of life. And it's not just for those here who are unbelievers, for Christians here too. Now we know the experience, don't we, of uh, the word of Christ coming to us, demanding a response, and we balk. And we feel the challenge of the word of God over some area of our life. He comes, he says, to set us free. But are there not times when we feel, Lord, when it comes to that part of my life, I have no desire to be liberated? Now whether it be our attitude to our own finances or doubting God's goodness and purpose in our lives or perhaps unforgiveness when the word of God comes to us again and again saying we must forgive. I know of people in this church family gripped by that very thing as I was for many years, unforgiveness. You can hear again and again the word of Christ saying to you, you must forgive. Are there not parts of our life where when he speaks rather than a word of liberation we hear a threat to our way of life? And in our heart, we echo the words of the evil one here in verse 34. Have you come to destroy us? And here's the heart of it. Here's why we feel that threat. Because this word not only declares the truth of who we are, it also declares who he, our God, is. Do you see it there in verse 34? The demon saw it. This is the word of the Holy One of God. This is the word of a God who is completely holy, who when you meet him in his heaven, you will bow before him. This is a word that exposes our sin against his utter holiness. It finds us out completely. And so to welcome his coming and the coming of his word to you, you you have to know who he is, your holy God, and you have to know he's come to serve you and see who you are to him. Now you see that in Luke 5 when Jesus finally says, uh, makes clear who he has come for, 5 verse 31, he says, I've not come for the well, I've not come for those who think they're sorted in life, I've come for the sick. I've come for the sinner, not the self-righteous. And so his word to us will only be a word of liberation if we are humble enough to see who we are before him, sick, enslaved and in need of release. We have to be able to see why he came, to call us sinners, call us to repentance, to call uh, the wonderful news that we are being released from that. And so finally, verse 35, when this skirmish, when this battle actually happens between Jesus and the evil one, it's, it's over in a breath. It's hardly a battle at all. Jesus wields his mighty sword, his word. He speaks, verse 35, you see there, be quiet. Come out of him. 
Surrender and release the prisoner is what Jesus says. Wonderful power. He speaks and the chains fall off. And the change is dramatic, isn't it? This man is fully restored, unharmed, the old gone, the new come. Again, the picture is extreme. This is a a violent moment as he's shaken. But it's a picture of what the word of Christ can do to a person. I reckon we get used to it, don't we? We almost get blasé when we hear news of someone turning to Christ. It, It doesn't wow us anymore, but it should. Because it represents another incursion of the kingdom of God into this world. A victory won by the word of Christ. It is as 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 puts it. The same God who said let there be light. And so it was. By that same sovereign, creative, powerful word. Says to dead, dull, dark, stubborn hearts. Surrender and live. And the result? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 says it is nothing short of a new creation. The chains fell off this man stubbornly in Luke 4. But when they were gone, what remained was what Jesus had come back to claim. A precious, unharmed new creation. As I read that verse uh, this week, it reminded me of a scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a character, Eustace, there, who his own sinful nature is described almost like a a dragon skin that has covered his body. And no matter how many times Eustace tries to sort of peel it off himself, get rid of this skin, this dragon skin, he can't do it. Three times he tries and it keeps just growing back. And eventually Aslan, the king, says this to him. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was desperate. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff finally peel off. And when he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself, then he caught hold of me and threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious as soon as I started swimming and splashing about in my new skin. Can you imagine that moment in the synagogue as this new man emerged unharmed? It's a picture of salvation. Ours might seem less spectacular, but it's just as dramatic. And behold the way your God overcomes sin and slavery to its consequences. He speaks. And more briefly, here's the second snapshot, verse 38 in Simon's house now. The Sunday service is over and plans are afoot to organise lunch. Perhaps you're making those plans yourself. Simon, what he does on this particular Sabbath is he approaches the speaker, he approaches Jesus and invites him to share a meal at his house. And I love this scene. It's so simple, so domestic. But that's what's so helpful about it. The first scene is dramatic and extreme and violent and loud. But this is the opposite. This is all very familiar, isn't it? Sunday lunch. But it's here in this comfortable context, this familiar context, that we see just how deep-rooted the brokenness in our world really is. I wonder how many Sabbaths that this scene had played out without note, that Simon had gathered some friends and they'd gone back for lunch, like we all do. That's what you do after a service. Simon's house was a place of Sabbath meals with friends chatting through the morning's teaching. You can't, miss, you can't miss it in the domesticity, though. 
This is the place where things actually fall apart. Without fanfare and without warning, they arrive home and Simon's mother-in-law, who was preparing the meal for them that day, one minute she's doing that, the next she is laid low. High fever, we're told. It's the sort of fever for its time that only ends in death. One minute, it's simple plans of roasts and afternoon walks. The next, the shadow of death has entered this house like some horrific home invader. Just a moment it took. And brothers and sisters, don't miss in this scene that this is our world. Not in generalities, this is our experience in our own homes. That is the place where things fall apart in a moment. I know most of the pews here looking out contain stories of homes that have experienced, even in recent times, all too acutely the the crash of a broken creation coming against you. When simple life, normal life, day after day life is broken by the news of unexpected pain that becomes something more or a sudden accident or the slow creep of some cruel disease, things fall apart in just a moment. I met with a man a couple of weeks ago who was grieving the sudden passing of his mother. She died age 94. 94, and he was telling me it was sudden. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? That's a great life, 94 years. But him it wasn't. To him he said, I never saw it coming. Even then, death is a horrible intrusion. Just a moment it takes. Things fall apart. We are not at home here. Exiled from our God, that's where we are. And the whole thing, the whole creation is bent out of shape. It it shouldn't be, as friends of mine experienced in recent times, it shouldn't be the the expectation of parents. At one moment, the leaping for joy at the news of twins and all the dreams and all the plans that come with that, shattered in a moment. Only the most steel-plated self-deception would say that things here on planet Earth are okay. This is a world in exile from God, broken, and there is only one reasonable impulse to all of that. It is to cry, help. And that's what Simon does here. Verse 38, they look to Jesus, the one who has come to proclaim release. They see in him someone who can actually help. Now, that's why at the very start of Luke's gospel, his birth is good news of great joy for all people, because here is a saviour for a broken world. And where we are powerless, he can help. Here is one who overcomes what overcomes us. And that matters, doesn't it? It really matters. My own grandfather died in this past year. He was a giant of a man to me, just a giant, a king. And it's not okay that he's gone. But we have here on display in this passage a king who even as a child in a stable was more a king than any of us. And this high king, our Jesus, bows to no man, no place, no power, not even death. It's why he came. You remember in Hebrews, he came to destroy him who holds the power of death. And to free those who all their lives lived in slavery to the fear of it. And you see a glimpse of that here in Simon's house. Verse 39, this king bows and bends before her bed and he speaks. He rebukes the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. He speaks. He commands the grip of death closing in on this house. Stand down and leave. And so freed from the grip of death, she is freed to live purposefully again. Now this is our hope. This is the Christian hope. 
Here is one who has authority and power by his word to free you from death. Only if you think you are more mighty than death this morning will his declaration of freedom from slavery be insignificant. Otherwise, how precious it is. And throughout Luke's gospel, we will see this power of his word over the grip of death again and again. He will say to a widow's son, he'll say to her, don't cry. And then to her dead son, young man, I tell you, get up. And then most wonderfully, I think, uh, the, the daughter of Jairus, he again bends his knee before this little girl's bed, this dead little girl, and he says, wake up. In each of these events, Jesus is showing us glimpses of what he had come to proclaim. Heaven on the march, rolling back Satan's stronghold, causing even death to retreat. Now, of course, this battle between Jesus and the one who holds the power of death is ultimately going to be played out in a very different way to these little skirmishes. God's ultimate word in this world is his son made flesh. It is his son, the word made flesh, who will set his face to Jerusalem. He will go there to suffer and to die. He'll walk up the hill of Calvary and he'll taste death for us all. But on the third day, as Acts 2 wonderfully declares, God will raise him from death, freeing him from, we're told there, the agony of death. For it was impossible to hold this one down. He walks into the very heart of death, our enemy, and he drops the bomb of his own resurrection there. And he sets the clock ticking. The clock ticking for the day, as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, that our last enemy will be finally defeated. The day coming when we won't have to learn to be at peace with death, but there won't be any more. The day when his mighty authoritative word will say to each of us in turn, one after another, as he did to Jairus' daughter, little child, wake up. Now, very, very briefly, the last two snapshots, we won't uh, dwell here, for they in many ways repeat what we have already seen, verse 40 onwards. But what they do make clear to us is the extent of the brokenness, the extent of the need for the ministry of Jesus. Now, by uh, sunset, everyone in this town of Capernaum has gathered at Simon's house. Everyone is desperate for this ministry. The extent is even further emphasised when you turn to the final snapshot from verse 42, by which time Jesus has retreated to a solitary place. They're desperate for him to stay. Please stay in Capernaum. There's so much brokenness to heal here. But here you see Jesus reveal the extent of the need. It's not just local, it's every town. And as the gospel goes on, it will be global. He intends to meet it at that level. And you also see here in these final verses his complete focus on how he will meet it. You see why he sent verse 43 and 44. He comes again and again wielding this mighty sword of the Spirit, his word. He comes, we're told, to proclaim good news of the kingdom of God breaking in. He comes to speak. And by speaking, bring this good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight, release for the oppressed, favour And so as we close, I want us to see clearly what we have been shown in this passage about the ministry of Jesus Christ. The ministry of our King is first and foremost a ministry of his word. He was sent to release captives of the evil one by speaking the news of God's kingdom to them. It's impossible to miss as we've walked our way through Luke 4. Back in 18 and 19, he says, I've been anointed to proclaim this good news, proclaim release, proclaim favour. Verse 22, it is his gracious words that strike them. 32, he comes with words of authority. 36, power. 
In verse 43, it says he is compelled by his father to keep doing this. Now, the ministry of Jesus Christ in this broken world is first and foremost a preaching ministry. And he intends, as we close, for those who come after him, those who would follow him, to do likewise. For it is this mighty sword of God, the word of God, that he uses to do battle in our world. He came himself proclaiming release and favour. He then delivered that on the cross and in his resurrection. And then in turn, he calls us to join him. As we finish, uh, flick to the end of Luke's gospel with me just for a moment. You'll see there uh, Luke 24 on page 1062. Here on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, here he begins this ministry again. Now Luke 24 verse 45 says this. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then this, verse 47, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. That's what he's doing in our world, sending disciples to preach to all the nations freedom, favour. How do we join this glorious cause, this battle that Jesus declared in that synagogue in Nazareth? We declare it. We announce, we herald, we proclaim, we preach the good news of this kingdom, release and favour. Now let us be a church where we listen and speak the word of Jesus to one another. Here is a weapon strong enough to meet whatever comes against our house. Here is a glorious weapon we yield when we reach out to a broken world because we are confident that here is a word that can release captives. And here is the precious word that we proclaim into one another's broken lives for we are confident that this is a word that can heal. And so brothers and sisters, let us together be a people who rejoice and rely on the word of Christ, a word strong enough to call evil to surrender and strong enough to restore us. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for your precious and powerful word, the word of your son. Father God, we praise you for this word that brings life Give us confidence to humbly receive it ourselves and humbly speak it to others. And we pray this for your glory's sake. Amen.